Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. We've got one of the most epic portions of the Torah to discuss, Parsha's Chukas, which is dealing with the nature of death. What is death? How does that work? And what is this mysterious substance called the ashes of the red heifer? What's going on with that? Something that purifies someone from the spiritual impurity of death. And it's a total confounding paradoxical construct that impurifies all those who prepare the, this, these ashes and purifies all those who are sprinkled with them. So how does something simultaneously impurify and purify? This was such a great paradox that it says that Shlomo HaMelech, the wisest person ever, couldn't grasp it. So we're going to touch on, on, on this dynamic and go deeper into what is the nature of not just death, but decomposition. What does it mean to be turned into ashes or to dust? There's a limit to what the finite mind can rationally grasp. Okay? And that just makes sense. I I, I put it this way one time, I like the imagery of it. Imagine just a drinking cup. Can a cup hold all the oceans of the world? One cup? No, of course not. So if that's the case, how can your head hold all the infinite wisdom of God? Just like a cup can't hold all the oceans of the, the the world, all the waters of the world, your head can't hold the infinite oceans of God. It can't. So the question is then, what do you do with that piece of information? What do you do with that? You you can reject it, first of all. You can say, no, no, my, my brain is infinitely smart. Science is making amazing advances every single day such that I will be able to know everything absolutely in the world. You you can take that stand. I would say that that would be optimistic at best. And if you want my opinion, I I would say that it's either, if we were to give it the benefit of the doubt, let's call it naive. And if we want to be a little bit more harsh, we'll call it arrogant. But I would suggest that it's just simply not true, that the human mind can't grasp everything that there is to know about creation. So again, a person, when confronted with this idea, has two choices. They can either reject it and say, no, the mind can grasp it, just as science advances, just science is not advanced enough. When it advances to its full blossoming, then we'll be able to understand everything there is under in the world, under the sun and above the sun. Or a person can say, that I can only know so much because the finite mind can only grasp so much of the infinite. Just like all the oceans of the water can't fit into one cup, my head can't hold all the knowledge there is of God. Remember, you've got different planes, different dimensions of reality. And angels see radically more, quantumly more, in terms of the revelation of God, but they don't see all of God. Even angels, spiritual creatures, don't see all of God. Only God sees all of God. In fact, it says that the angels say, where is the place of his glory? Even they only know a certain amount. Okay. So here's the point that I'm getting to, which is that admission that we can only know so much, I think is actually a very rational thought. Not only do I think that it's a very rational thought, but I think that a person doesn't begin to approach wisdom unless they accept that thought. In other words, if you want to be smart, the first thing that you have to know is that you can't know everything. That's as plainly as I can say it. And if you think you can know everything, then, you know what, just, I don't know. Good luck. Okay, so Torah 
divides the commandments, the mitzvot, into different categories. One of the command, one of the categories of the commandments is what's called a chuk, right? Chukas, the name of this week's parsha, which again has this amazing paradoxical mystery. How can something that purifies one impurify another? So that's the ultimate chuk. It says, Zos chukas Torah. And then the rabbis say, no, they're not. When they say that this is the chok of the Torah, they're saying that the entire Torah is a chok. That on the deepest level, we can't fully understand anything about the Torah, that the Torah is so infinite. We can just understand levels of it, but not the entirety of it, because the entirety of it, so to speak, is God's mind. Right? And if only God sees God, who sees all of God's mind except God only? As the prophet says, and this is to me is just one of these fundamental verses that you have to go through life with, which is, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. That's just, uh, to me, I love that, because it's just a basic reality check. You see, to mention Rabbi Green again, he should live and be well. He said, people think, God is a better, smarter, stronger version of me. (laughs) No, God is beyond, right? not just a better version of you. As I used to say to my kids, God doesn't have a body. God makes bodies. God is just beyond. And the amazing aspect of God is that he's simultaneously completely involved with every aspect of our life. That he's so present and so beyond all at the same time. But the point is is that we can never fully grasp him. And that's a good thing, right? Because as we always mention, the Katsuka Rebbe said, I would never serve a God I understood. Because if you fully understood God, then you're also God. So what do you need God for? It's also why it says in the Gemara that God can't be in the same place as an arrogant person. Because God looks at you and says, okay, so you think you're running the world? So what do you need me for? So go ahead, you run the world. So this understanding, and it's a whole category of the mitzvot, of the commandments, that there's a category that we're told we'll never fully understand. And that's one of the gateways to wisdom, understanding that there are things in this world that you can understand and things in this world that you can't understand. And that's not a failing of you as an individual. That's how God deliberately constructed the world. So now let's get very visual with it. Okay, you have your head and the crown sits above your head, meaning the top of your head is where rational thought ends. The top of your head symbolizes the end to which you can grasp intellectually of the universe. But then... God puts a crown on top of your head. Okay? Now, you want to, that is the divine gateway to divine wisdom. <laughs> now, listen to this. The word for crown is keter. Keter is the numerical equivalent of 620. The Balaturim says there's 620 letters in the Ten Commandments which encompass the entire Torah. Did you hear that? The word crown, which sits on top of your head, is keter, which is 620, which is the number of letters in the Ten Commandments, which contains, the Ten Commandments contains the entirety of the Torah. In other words, your mind only reaches a certain place, but then you have a crown on your head. That's the divine wisdom. That's the Torah, which gives you access to understanding not only how things work in this dimension, but in dimensions beyond. Now, the Torah itself says that the nations of the world, meaning the non-Jewish people, have wisdom. And so anyone who disrespects the the wisdom of of the non-Jewish world is a fool, because the Torah itself is telling you that they have wisdom. But, 
it goes on to say, but they don't have Torah. So in other words, we can learn tremendous amounts, and we have learned tremendous amounts from our brothers and sisters from all the nations. There's no question about that. It's amazing. At the same time, though, we have Torah. Torah is the divine wisdom. So Torah is giving you the keys, not just to this dimension, but to spheres beyond. And that's the Keter. That's the crown that sits above the head. That's the 620, which is the Ten Commandments, which is the whole Torah. That gives you access to the beyond. Okay. So with that in mind, let's talk about this paradox. And ultimately, it is a mystery. But the great thing about the Torah is that even in the face of things that we're told that we're never going to fully understand, the Torah says, okay, now try to fully understand them. <laughs> so we, there are two, excuse me, there are two reactions that you can have in the face of the impossible. One is resignation. I'm never going to understand it, so why should I try? But, or it can be, I'm never going to understand it. Now let's try to understand it. <laughs> and that's the Jewish view, by the way. You say it's impossible? Okay, it's impossible. Let me try. <laughs> so we we are a very optimistic people. And as I love to share with you, the philosopher Schopenhauer hated the Jews. And one of the main reasons why he hated the Jews was because he said that we gave optimism to the world. How dare we give optimism to this horrible world? To this world that is doomed to destruction and failure. That was his point of view. But the Jewish people say, okay, there's some growing pains, no question. A lot of difficulties, a lot of hatred, but we're going to get past it, we're going to solve it, and the world's going to be a great place. That's our view. As I like to say, we believe in evolution more than Darwin did. Darwin just said that life evolved from a single cell into who you are right now. We say that the entire world is evolving and is continuing to evolve until it reaches the perfection that God had in mind as the destiny for the world before he created the world itself. It's not just going to happen. It was the plan from the very beginning, from before the world was even created. So in this very optimistic understanding of the world, which we have the keys to, we have the divine foreknowledge of. God has given us through the Torah this information of the direction that the world itself is heading in. And that is the end of death. No more death. So we're going to go through a history of death in a moment. Um, but first, I want to just reflect upon this paradox. As we say, we can't understand how those who prepare the ashes, and let me be a little bit more detailed now. So what would happen is you had to take a red heifer, and it had to be, I think with the exception of two hairs, completely red, okay? Now, interestingly, just as a historical note, we've had nine red heifers in history, and but we don't have the ashes of the red heifer anymore, which means that everyone spiritually speaking, is in the state of being what's called Tame Mace. So just to give you the, the basic Torah understanding, someone had to be, in order to enter into the Holy Temple, in, into the base of Migdash, someone had to be in a place of ritual purity in order to enter in. Okay? That went for everyone. Men, women, everybody. Even the people who who served, the Kahanim, the Levium, everyone who served in the base of Migdash. You had to be in a place of ritual purity. Now, if you touched a dead body or came into contact with a dead body, you were what's called Tame Mace. This, that communicated a certain spiritual impurity to you. And you couldn't enter into the base of Migdash until you had the ashes of the red heifer put on you, which cleansed you from this state of spiritual impurity, and then you could go into the base of Megdash. Now, here's something very interesting. Every single person in the world today is Tamei Mace. Because every single person in the world touched 
someone, who touched someone, who touched someone, who touched someone, who touched someone, who touched a dead body. So the entire world has this spiritual categorization. Now, historically speaking, we've had nine red heifers, but we ran out of these ashes of the red heifer centuries and centuries ago. Interestingly, Rabbi Ari Kaplan writes in the book, I, I believe it's in, in Meditation in Kabbalah, that long after, generations after the second base of Migdash was destroyed, there were circles of Kabbalists who still had some of the ashes of the red heifer. And in order for them to reach these exalted spiritual realms, which they were able to reach through their purity and their Torah observance and their Torah study and their profound levels of meditation, that they were able to reach realms that, that, that were phenomenal. But these very high places that you can't reach if you have this, if you're Tame Mace. And so they were able to access these ashes of the red heifer generations after the second temple was destroyed in order to be in this purified state in order to reach to these highest places. So even though at the end of the second temple, prophecy ended, our greatest Kabbalists reached places that were so phenomenally high. It wasn't prophecy. It, it was... Their words are truthful and reliable. Let's put it that way. Okay? Knowing a little bit of history like this that I'm telling you, which is not very well known, by the way. It's very not well known. Just should give you even more respect and awe at the words of our great leaders, okay? Knowing what was going on behind the scenes, how they access these levels of wisdom. Okay, so there's going to be a 10th red heifer in the days of Mashiach, and that will be a sign of the coming of Mashiach when we get that 10th red heifer. And believe it or not, I read a, an article in the New Yorker years ago that there was a fundamentalist Christian cattle rancher, one of the most advanced cattle ranchers in the world in terms of husbandry science, like just how to you know breed cattle. He's like a world authority and is a religious person and set about to breed, has been working on breeding a red heifer. Isn't that interesting? And if you've been following the news every few years, and I've, in my memory, so this is just in my, my lifetime, there have been announcements about two or three, I don't remember exactly, definitely two, maybe even three calves that have been born red heifers. But here's the kicker. It has to be a red heifer at the age of two years old. In other words, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but many children are born with blue eyes. And like we had a, a daughter who was born with blue eyes and the doctor told us, don't get too attached to the blue eyes. Lots of kids are born with blue eyes. They're going to turn brown. Hers actually stayed blue, believe it or not. My, my dad had blue eyes, but, and my grandfather too. But the point is that a lot of times, most of the time, the blue eyes turn brown. And I tell you that because it's genetics. The red heifer that's born will have many hairs that are not red by the time it's two years old. And that's been the case with each of these red heifers that's been born recently. But, and this is an aside, but this is how I understand it. I feel like whether it stays red or not is not a genetic question. It's up to us. In other words, if we do tshuva as a people, if we, to put it more colloquially, if we get our act together as a people, in terms of just understanding what this world is all about and what our lives are all about, if we can just get it right, those hairs are going to stay red. In other words, it's, it's not, oh, genetically it wasn't really a red heifer. We thought it was, but it isn't. No, 
If something's born a red heifer, it can, nothing's hard for God. Why would, he make, why would he make a red heifer born to begin with? Do you understand? It's up to us. Okay, so those red heifers didn't stay red, unfortunately. But let's talk about this paradox for a moment. And like I say, we're told that we can't understand it, but then we're urged to try to understand it. So I came up with an explanation for it one time, and I actually told it to Reb Shlomo, and he liked it. And I felt really good about that. Like, your Rebbe likes a Torah of yours. That's a good thing. By the way, it always reminds me of something his twin brother, Reb Eli Chaim, said. I forgot which Rebbe said it, but, but he, he used to say this over and, and laugh very hard afterwards, which is, a Rebbe says to his student, I'll make you a deal. You can say my Torah is in your name just as long as you don't say your Torah is in my name. So anyway, <laughs> this is my Torah, it's not his Torah. So if you don't like it, it's my fault. So we're trying to understand, how could it be that something, let's just go through the, the process itself, right? Let's just get the basics down. So we understand there's this thing of called impurity of death and that we all have this spiritual status. So what would you do? So you would take a red heifer that was two years old or older, right? That didn't have more than two non-red hairs. You would shecht it, which means you would kill it in a kosher way, which means the maximum painless way. And there are laws that, that talk about that. By the way, I'll just tell you another aside. It's a fascinating aside. There are people who don't fully understand that the Talmud and is also from God. And what I mean by that is that we've got two aspects to the Torah. We've got the Torah Shebek Tzav, that's the written Torah, and we've got the Torah Shabal Peh, that's the oral. We, we also call it the Talmud or the Gomorrah, okay? And our tradition is the Jewish tradition is that when Moshe got the Torah and Mount Sinai from God, that God didn't just give it to him letter by letter, the written Torah, but that God paused periodically to explain to Moshe what these passages meant. So Moshe didn't just get the written Torah itself, but Moshe got God's own explanations of the passages of the Torah. And without getting into too much detail, those explanations that God gave to Moshe were not written down. God said, don't write those down. And those were given over person to person. And so we always had these two Torahs simultaneously. It's one Torah, but we had the written Torah, and then we had the explanations for what the passages meant. And the non-Jewish world eventually got the written Torah, right? It was translated um, by Ptolemy um, into Greek. That's the Septuagint, right? If you ever see that word Septuagint, it's one of those wacky words that you wonder, what is that? That is the Greek translation of the five books of Moses. And then eventually it was translated into Latin and the King James edition and all these things that got further and further away from the meaning of the Torah itself. There were all these, because you see, you can't translate something without it being a commentary on that thing itself. Let me explain. My brother-in-law explained this to me the first time, and it's just such a kind of foundational thought. Every Hebrew word in the Torah is working on many different levels. Now, if you want to translate it into, say, English, you have to pick one of, say, five words which are going on simultaneously in the Hebrew. That means when you pick one of five words, you are choosing which definition to convey, which means your translation is a commentary. Do you understand that? A very important idea. There is no pure translation of the Torah. It doesn't exist and it can't exist. Because how can you give five different words simultaneously or more for one word in a coherent translation? It, it doesn't work. Now, 
Since you are a product, each one of us is a product of our beliefs and how we grew up and our time and our culture, you are going to pick the word that's most appropriate. Not only are you going to put your own opinion on what's most appropriate, but you are a reflection of the culture that you live on. Live it. Which means that there's going to be this cultural and alien theological overlay onto the translation itself also. Which is going to be another corruptive element to the translation. Such that, and this is very interesting historically, we fast the day that the Torah was translated into Greek. To this day, the 10th day of the month of Tavis is a fast day. Now, the main reason why we fast on that day is because the walls of the Beis Migdash, the walls of Jerusalem were surrounded and it was a prelude to the destruction of the Holy Temple. But if you actually look at why we're fasting, there's several reasons why we're fasting. And one of the reasons why we fast is that the Torah was translated. Now, interestingly, I heard a, a, a Shira talk on this, on this subject not so long ago. The people at the time that it was translated turned that day, you ready for this? Not into a, a fast day, but into a holiday because they were so happy that this divine wisdom was now accessible to them. Isn't that interesting? So the way they received it in a contemporary way was, yay, we can finally understand this stuff. But the sages said, and again, an amazing piece of imagery, that it was like a lion being put into a cage. The lion being the truth of the Torah itself was now captured and imprisoned. So I, I went on a safari in, in South Africa and I was in the Jeep with some other people and the guide on the first, before we went on the first run right through the savannah. I don't know how you say it. He said, what do you want to see? What do you want to see? And this person said tigers, and that person said lions. And then he turned to me. He said, what do you want to see? And I said, wonderment. <laughs> he just shook his head. <laughs> he went, wonderment. All right. All right. That's the last question I asked this guy. <laughs> but I wanted to see lions. And that's the one animal we didn't see, which was... A drag, because to see a lion out, not in a cage, not in a cage, but running around, that would have been awesome. But anyway, I remember there was a drive-through safari in outside of Tel Aviv, and we got to the lions, and I got out of my car because I wanted to look, and to this day, my wife still yells at me for that. What are you getting out of the car for? There are lions over there. But they were... They were sitting so nicely. Anyway. So what's... The point is that that we would... Oh, yeah. Okay. So a lot of... A, something that you have to know is that there's the written Torah and there's the oral Torah. There are the five books and there's God's own translation explanation of the five books. All right, that becomes the Talmud. Now, the non-Jewish world has the five books, but for the most part, and they can learn it in Hebrew, certainly, but for the most part, they have it in translation. Not only do they have it in translation, but they don't have the Talmud's explanation of the verses. See, that's what makes the Jewish understanding of the quote-unquote Bible. Reb Shlomo said, don't use the word Bible. Always use the word Torah. But that, this is what makes our understanding of the Torah so unique. Because we have the understanding of these verses from God's own explanation of the verses. 
Very important to appreciate that. Okay, so why am I telling you all of this about the written Torah and the oral Torah? Because there are those people who say they, they use this term, which is always used disrespectfully. Even if the person says this term respectfully, the term itself is disrespectful. <laughs> okay, I'll give you another example of that. The term, the Old Testament, is a disrespectful term. The Old Testament implies that it's old and that there's a New Testament. There, No, no. The Torah is the Torah forever. The Torah will never stop being the Torah. Remember, even Mashiach won't be as great a prophet as Moshe Rabbeinu is. The Torah remains eternal forever. The five books remain eternal forever. Okay, so even if people use the term Old Testament, the term itself is disrespectful because it's not true. It's ever new. Okay. I'll give you another term that, that is one of these terms. You ready? They say this with heavy quotation marks. Rabbinic Judaism. <laughs> Rabbinic Judaism is a slanderous term <laughs> for not believing that there is an oral law. Not understanding or appreciating that when God gave the written law, that he simultaneously gave the explanation of the verses. And so you have a, a, a great sort of like divide that opens up in terms of trying to understand what is Judaism, Right? And now you get the, the terms orthodox, conservative, reform, Hasidic, right? None of those terms are in the Torah. None of those terms are in the Torah. Those are all historical slash sociological classifications that have been thrown up after the fact, right? There's only been the Torah and the classic way of understanding the Torah. Then you can say, I see it differently. And as they would say, Gesundheit, hey, live and be well. You want to understand it differently? You can understand it differently. That's your business. But we have the classic understanding of the Torah. And there are those who say, no, really what the Torah is just, it's just those five books. And then the rabbis kind of like riffed on it. You know what I mean? They did their own kind of thing, and that's the Talmud, but that's not really the Torah, and so if they say it, I'm not listening to them, I'm just saying what the Torah says. Okay, so that is already, and I'm describing a large percentage of the world right now, that is now entering into the depths of exile. That's the depths of exile, because it's just, they're really disconnecting themselves from really what we understand the Torah to be and have always understood the Torah to be. Okay. And by the way, let's be sympathetic for a moment. Let's be sympathetic for a moment. It's been a long exile. It's been a long exile. And it's things are going to happen. So, unfortunately, this is one of the things that have happened. But again, why am I telling you all of this within the discussion of the red heifer? Because the written Torah itself refers to the oral Torah. And one of the places where it refers to it is by Shechita. I told you that we take the red heifer and we kill it in a kosher way. That's the reason why I'm telling you all of this thing. Okay? The Torah itself, the written Torah, the written Torah itself says that you are to take this animal and kill it as you have been instructed. This is a verse from the written Torah. Nowhere in the written Torah are there any explanations of how to kill in a kosher way. And yet the verse in the Torah itself says, you are to kill it as you have been instructed. In other words, here is a direct reference in the written Torah to the truth and the existence of God's own explanations, which is the oral Torah. 
Do you hear? This is, this is a very important thought. For anyone who will tell you that the rabbis just went off on their own and everything like that. I believe what's in the written Torah. So if you believe what's in the written Torah itself is telling you about the oral Torah. Okay. This is all in the category of Judaism 101, by the way. If you think I've told you anything advanced here, this is Judaism 101, okay? Basic Jewish literacy. Okay. All right, so let's get back to the ashes of the red heifer. Kosher slaughter, the, the animal. And then you burn it so that it becomes ashes. Okay. And then you mix it with hyssop, some cedar wood, a red thread, right? And mayim chayim. Okay, we're going to get to that. Living waters. You mix it all together. And you've got this amazing solution that removes the impurity of death. All right. Now, what about this contradiction? Every person who participated in one of the stages that I just described to you becomes spiritually impure. And yet, when the solution is fully made, the one who sprinkles the water, he himself does not become spiritually impure. Very important. That's a common misunderstanding. Thinking that even the one who sprinkles the water after they've all been prepared, that he also becomes impure. He does not become impure. Just the people who have built it along the way. And of course, the one who receives it becomes pure. All right. Now, let me try to tell you my explanation of this. And I didn't grow up uh, in a Torah-observant family. I came to observance later on in life. And we, we have a very interesting idea in terms of kind of returning back to God. We call it tshuva, right? Tshuva, return. That if you return to God with love, from a place of love, in other words, not just from a place that, oh, I better do what the Torah says, otherwise God is going to zap me. Which, by the way, perfectly fine way to return. <laughs> it's not the deepest. It's not the deepest. You can do better. You can do better. But not the worst. But really, ultimately, you have to appreciate that this whole world, this whole relationship is a love affair, right? So you want to get to that place of love, right? So if you return to God out of love, all of your previous actions, even if they were 100% against the Torah, become mitzvot. All of a sudden, they become merits for you. Now, how on earth does that happen? Well, the logic, if you think about it, is very clear. This thing, when I did it at this point in my life, was against the Torah. It's true. However... Doing that led me on the road to the person I am today, which is a Torah Jew. And so, in retrospect, that thing that I did wrong led me to the place of being the person who's doing right. Therefore, at the moment that I did it, it impurified me, but afterwards... It purified me <laughs> because it led to the person that I became. So isn't that interesting that the very same act can impurify and purify? The very same act. And I'll give it to you a different way. That maybe along the way in my life I did something I shouldn't have done, but it led me to a place of serving God. So, in retrospect, it becomes a mitzvah. But if someone else did that same act, it may not lead to them becoming a better person. So that thing which, which purified me, they did the exact same act. It didn't help them at all. It just impurified them. So there you see it from a different perspective, how the very same act can purify someone and impurify another person. Okay. So now, 
Let's get to the history of death. When did death enter into the world? When Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge. And listen to the snake. Now, the Or HaChayim says that before we ate from the tree of knowledge, that it was like a person who lived in a two-story house, that we were capable of going upstairs. In other words, human beings were able to go to these higher dimensions and then back to earth, like a person walks to the second floor of his house, down to the first floor of his house. In fact, the Torah goes deeper. The Torah says that Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, were actually creatures of light. L-I-G-H-T, light. We had a form, but we were creatures of light. And if you want a kind of like a modern day example, think of Eliyahu Hanavi, right? Eliyahu Hanavi goes upstairs and downstairs. He can appear as a spiritual creature or he can come down in a human form, okay? So this concept even exists to this day. But this was really the, the starting place for all of humanity and for Adam and Eve. We were creatures of light. Now, what happened was, when death entered into the world, the Torah says, in a slightly different context, but the deep understanding of the Torah, is that when God gave us, when we were exiled from the Garden of Eden, the verse says that God gave us garments. Okay, garments of skin or garments of leather. And interestingly, the word is or in Hebrew. But or spelled with an ayin, ayin vav resh, or, that means leather. So here's the classic way, or the basic way, that people understand that verse. We were human beings made out of flesh and blood to begin with. And then when we left the Garden of Eden, God, as a kindness, gave us like garments, like a coat to wear, to guard us, shield us from the elements outside of the Garden of Eden. That's how people understand it. But the Torah understanding of this is phenomenally deeper, which is that we started off as creatures of light. And when God gave us these garments, it wasn't a coat to put on our existing skin. It was our skin itself. We became physical creatures with bodies. And that's the idea of or with an ayin, ayin vav resh. That was the skin, that's the leather. But Rabbi Meir, now if you don't know who Rabbi Meir is, Rabbi Meir is one of the towering figures of the entire Talmud. Right? He's beyond Rabbi Meir. Like, the deepest. And it says in Rabbi Meir's Torah scroll, he made a note. And in the margin where it says or, meaning leather, or with an ayin, he wrote the letter Aleph. Now, if you spell the word or with an Aleph, it's the Hebrew word for light, L-I-G-H-T, light. Meaning that Rabbi Meir himself, and he was the master of the Tor Shabal Peh, he was the master of the oral tradition, that he himself is instructing us that we were originally made out of light, olive vavresh, and then God clothed us in these garments of skin. Now, why is that? Why is that important? Because once we have bodies, we have death, and once we had bodies. What happened was these upper realms became sealed off to us while we still had a body. The only way to access these higher dimensions is without a body. And why did all this happen? Because we listened to the argumentation of the snake. Now, after 120, we should all live long lives. We're buried and our bodies become dust. Now, 
most people think of this as like a horrible thing. I had such a great body and now it's dust. This is really such a drag. What happened to my body? I worked so hard on it. There's so many things I didn't eat. And now for what? It's a bunch of dust. And we just really see that as just like the tragedy of life. Our bodies become dust. But now I want to tell you how Rav Frommer understands it in the Eretzvi, which is like such a mind blower. You ready for this? Kabbalistic, Kabbalistically speaking, it's a little bit intense, but we're adults here, right? Kabbalistically speaking, do you know what your body is referred to? You ready for this? As snakeskin. Why? We're not genetically related to snakes, okay? It's not saying that we've got, we're part snake. That's not it. That's not what the Torah is saying. Because we listened to the snake, that's why it's called snake snakes, snake skin. Because by listening to the snake, we brought death into the world and we became physicalized creatures. That's why it's called snake skin. Because by listening to the snake, we internalized death. That's why it's called snake skin. So now in that context, listen to the following. After 120, we're buried and our body turns into dust. Do you know what that means? We got rid of the snakeskin. Do you understand how it's not a tragedy at all, but how it's the greatest kindness? This snakeskin, this physicalization of my body is now no longer. Very profound thought. But now that's just the jumping off point for the next point, okay? Which is, we want to know, how do the ashes of the red heifer work? How does it remove the impurity of death? Now listen to what Raphumer explains. He says that just like a person, when they get turned into dust, don't, does, don't have, doesn't have the impurity of death on them anymore because they've, sh- they've gotten rid of their snakeskin, okay? You can access your own ashes, your own ultimate purification. When you become ashes, you can access that early. How? Through the ashes of the red heifer. <laughs> and that's how the ashes of the red heifer work. The ashes of the red heifer are your early access to your own ashes, which are your own purification. Are you understanding the dynamics of how this works? Those ashes are basically a substitute for your own ashes when you become purified from your own snakeskin. And by getting those ashes on you, you're relieved of the impurity of death. Now with that in mind, With that in mind, let's go a step further. Imagine I'm missing something. I've got a vitamin D deficiency. I take vitamin D and now I've got the vitamin D that I didn't have before. That's not how the ashes work. It's not that I have some sort of deficiency, which is this impurity of death, and the ashes are coming to fill in this space, and now I'm full and I'm whole. That's not it. The ashes are accessing my, the eternal life that's in me right now. In other words, the ashes are not giving me something that I didn't have. The ashes are accessing the eternal life that's in me already and activating it. And now we'll say one more thought and we'll wrap it up. Now you can understand this ingredient of the Mayim Chaim. You see, these living waters, right? It's not just a recipe. You've got the ashes of the red heifer and you mix it with the living water and then you throw in the red thread and all the other things. It's not a recipe. Rav explains it's a timeline of the human experience that we become ashes But after we become dust, we enter into the next world. 
which is a world of brimming with life, quantumly higher life than exists in this world. That's the Mayim Chaim. In other words, we go from ashes to Mayim Chaim in terms of our own lifeline. And that timeline is actually mixed together and becomes part of this incredible mixture called the Paraduma, the ashes of the red heifer. So it's not just a recipe. It's a description of our life in this world as it goes into this realm of newness, Mayim Chaim. My niece told me something so beautiful, and I'm going to end with this. They tried to bury us, but we're seeds. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? They tried to bury us, but we're seeds. It doesn't work. You can't get rid of us. You can't get rid of us. You can't get rid of us. Because God's forever, the Torah is forever, and the Jewish people are forever. There's one more teaching that, that I want to share that is, is, I think, a very awesome, beautiful teaching. And maybe we'll end after this. Which is, this comes from the Avni Nezer, okay? The Avni Nezer was the son-in-law of the, of the Kutzka Rebbe, okay? And was, was, Rav Frimmer was the, was like the great student of the Avni Nezer, okay? Avni Nezer was awesome, awesome. Like one of the greatest geniuses in Torah. And, and he said the following. Our tradition is, and this is what the Talmud says, is that after we got the Torah at Mount Sinai, that death was removed from the world. And that when we worship the golden calf, that death returned back to the world. But that when we received the Torah, that we became like Adam and Eve before they ate from the tree of knowledge. That's all in the Talmud, okay? So why is it Rav Firmer brings the Avnei Nezer. Why is it that when we got the Torah, that death left the world? Now listen to this beautiful piece of imagery. Unbelievable. You ready? The rabbis say that when it says in the Torah that the letters were carved, the letters of the Ten Commandments were carved into stone, don't read the word as carved. But it, this is a play on words in the Hebrew. root actually can mean carved, but it's pronounced differently. It means, this is a very interesting idea, that the word carved, that the letters being carved into the stone actually means freedom. Now, freedom in what way? Freedom from death. Just as an aside, before we finish with the Avnei Nezer, I heard this from a Rabbi Carmi one time, and I thought it was wonderful. He said that people are naturally neurotic. That means you're constantly unsure. Is this right or is that right? Is that right or is this right? Maybe it's this. No, maybe it's that. I'm not sure. Maybe it was that first thing all along. And you flip back and forth and back, and, and that's how he's defining neurosis. Okay? A good working definition, I think. Anyway, so the idea is that ethics, what's right and what's wrong, is a moving target for most people. Like, we like cremation. Maybe it's a good thing, but it's not a good thing. It's a, the Torah is very definitive about it. The Torah is saying it's a bad thing. It's not a moving target. The Torah is saying very clearly it's not to be done. So that's how something being engraved allows us to be free. And let me just speak it out more clearly. Freedom and something being engraved sound like opposites. Because once something is engraved, it's not free to go anywhere. It's stuck right in that spot. It is stuck right in that spot. So how can something be engraved be associated with something being free? So now here's the greatness, I think, of this explanation, is that the reason why it's equated with freedom, and this is more of a psychological insight, is because 
it's not a moving target anymore, right? And wrong are not moving targets anymore, right? And wrong become fixed points. And once they're fixed points, you are free. Because now this is right and this is wrong. And you're not oscillating between the two for your whole life in a state of neurosis. So that's one insight. But now I want to tell you what the Avni Nazar says. He says that, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe says this too, when you write on a piece of paper, it's two separate entities. You have the ink and you have the paper. The ink sits above the paper. But when you carve something, the stone becomes transformed and it becomes one thing. The letters become part of the stone, the stone become part of the letters, and it becomes one entity, one organic entity. Now listen to this. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. He says, that same idea happens with the soul and the body. That just like the letters got carved into the stone and they transformed the stone so that the stone and the letters became one entity, when we received the Torah, our souls became engraved into our bodies such that it wasn't that we just had a soul and a body. Our souls became engraved into our bodies such that our flesh itself became spiritualized. And when our flesh became spiritualized, we became immortal. And by the way, this is the destiny of humanity after the resurrection of the dead, is that what will arise is not just another body, we get another shot at life again, but reality itself is going to enter into its next stage where we become immortal because our flesh and our bodies become integrated and become one. And what happened was, when we worshiped the golden calf, that disengagement happened again. And, and the parallel for that is that the rabbis teach that when we worship the golden calf, that the letters flew up from the tablets themselves. And that that is parallel to the idea of the soul flying up and becoming disengaged from the body. And that's what happened with the worship of the golden calf. But the destiny is that that reintegration of the soul and the body is going to happen. And if you haven't got a body, how does it happen exactly? So we need that body. We need that body. And that's our faith. That's our faith. Okay. Are you asking, I just want to make sure, are you asking why was, why did death come into the world when we ate from the tree of knowledge? Yes. Okay. So I can just tell you my understanding of it. I, I had this experience where I was younger at the time, but I was with this older couple that was bitterly fighting just the whole time that I was with them. It was really extremely unpleasant. And at one point I was in the car with the, with the person's, with the woman, with the person's wife, and the man who she was just so angry at was walking toward the car. And I'll never forget this. She said, look, he's going to touch his nose. He's going to touch his nose. Just look, just wait, 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 wait. He's going to touch his nose. She knew him so well. The amazing thing is, he never touched his nose. <laughs> but she knew him so well, or she thought she knew him so well. And when you think you know someone so well, I know what you're going to say before you say it. That's how well I know you. Don't tell me another story. I've heard it a million times. It's the death of a relationship. And it comes with us and God, too. Some people... It's misguided, but they think they know God so well. And that's the death of a relationship between Gus and God. And when Reb Shlomo married my wife and I, he blessed us that we should always surprise each other. And it's a great blessing because if you're always surprising each other, you're always realizing you don't know the other person or there's so much more to know. 
so that's more of a drusha. That's more of a, on a meta- metaphorical level of how the tree of knowledge brought death into the world. Okay. But let's talk about death, not, not just as becoming disenchanted, but actual death itself. You see, the Or HaChayim, again, says that originally we were like creatures of light and that the world was like a two-story house. We could go upstairs and downstairs. And that after we ate from the tree of knowledge, we went against God's word. These upper spheres, these upper dimensions, these heavenly aspects were closed off to us. And we became physicalized also. We ate from the tree and we became physicalized. Now, just like death itself eventually were turned into dust, not ashes, but dust. And and that gets rid of the snake skin, that gets rid of the body, so that's a purification process. And then, here's the point, we're able to enter those higher dimensions again. Those higher dimensions are no longer closed off to us. And so in that way, death is not a punishment, but death is the ability to re-enter those heavenly spheres that we once had access to. It's a different way of understanding death, that it wasn't just some sort of like vengeful kind of sentence that was put on humanity, but it was a way for us to regain access to these divine realms that we used to be able to have access to and now have access to again. What is your question? Why is cremation prohibited? Because you have to return your body as it was given. Do I come to your house and borrow a book and then take scissors and cut out my favorite chapters and return to you? Is that appropriate behavior? If, if you were to borrow something from someone, like imagine taking out a library book, just to give a very mundane example, and then to take out a highlighter pen and to highlight all the different passages that you thought were interesting in the library book with day glow, yellow and pink ink, and then return the book back to the library. Is that right? Is that proper? Is that proper? So God gives us a body and we're supposed to return the body that he gave it, that he gave to us, that he loaned to us. It's a loner. Your body is a loner. And that's why, by the way, Jews don't get tattoos because it's, what are you doing? And if someone requests to be turned into ashes, they, they don't have permission to do that either. So in no version does the Torah allow someone to become ashes. That's the point. I just want to tell you just something. I just remembered something just humorous from my own life. Um, I talked about highlighting books. So I just tell you a, a quick story. All four summers when I was at Harvard, I was the elevator man in my building in New York City. <laughs> and and I had a neighbor who was a professor. And it was the building that I grew up in. So that that, that was an interesting twist. But my downstairs neighbor was a professor at Brooklyn College, and he was the editor of the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Okay? Now, for the older among us, you'll remember that the back page of the New York Times book review, Sunday book review, always had a deal where if you subscribe to this thing, you would get a free edition of the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. That was something, that was like an ad that ran for about a decade, okay? Anyway, he was the editor of it. So freshman year, when I was running the elevator, I thought to myself, this is crazy. I've got to keep myself intellectually stimulated. So he got into the elevator one time, and I said to him, how about I intern for you? That seemed pretty good. I'll run the elevator and I'll intern from the editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia of Philosophy. That sounds pretty good. So he actually said yes. He said, okay. And he was writing an article about reincarnation. And he, Shirley MacLaine had come out with a book called Out on a Limb, which was a big bestseller at that point. And... And I went to his apartment and he gave me the copy. And this was my first assignment as 
the intern to the editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, okay? And he told me to underline the passages that were interesting. So I started reading the book, and I noticed that someone's already underlined a lot of the passages. And I thought to myself, and I looked at what they had underlined, and I thought, why did they underline that? That's not meaningful at all. No wonder he took that person off the project and he gave the project to me. So I returned with my notes and I said to him, listen, I understand why you gave me the project because whoever underlined those previous things didn't know what they were talking about. And he said, I underlined those things. <laughs> and that was the end of my internship. Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind-bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs Spiritual Tools. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.